0: Amen. What about you? I'm glad that God's mercies remain unchanged. Amen. While we constantly change, his mercies never do. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Today, as we wrap up this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, by looking at what our Lord has to say about loving our enemies. Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 43 through verse 48. The word of the Lord says, Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you now, God, that we have the great opportunity, Lord, uh, to learn of your word. God, I pray that you would teach us your truth, speak to your people, comfort, equip, encourage, convict, exalt Christ today, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So this is part two. Last week, we looked at the text, and the way we looked at it is we looked at the devastating results of what happens when we misinterpret and misapply God's word. And we showed how that the traditional oral teaching of the Jews to love your neighbor and hate your enemy stood over and against God's law. We saw how the Jews narrowed the scope of neighbors to that only to include their fellow Jews. And we, look at old te- we looked at Old Testament texts that the Jews completely missed and ignored around loving your enemies, such as Exodus 23, verse 4 and 5, about uh, rescuing your enemy's uh, ox or his donkey which wandered away. Or 20, Proverbs 25, 21 and 22, where it says very explicitly, if your enemy is hungry, give him food to drink, and if he is thirsty, give him water Food to eat if he's thirsty, give him water to drink. So today we will look at the actual requirements that God gives to love uh, your enemies and we're going to look at the requirement to love but also the reason why he gives and then the results of when uh, there when the requirement is obeyed. Uh, so again last week we looked at what happens when we take our traditions and they trump the Word of God, our traditions when, uh, they override or negate the word of God and the devastating impacts that it had upon the Jewish nation. Uh, we saw that the Jewish nation was meant to be a light to the Gentiles, uh, that they were to love and God was going to use the Jewish nation to bless all nations uh, And their, with their misinterpretation of loving only their own kind and hating their enemies. It had devastating results. So now we're going to look at the actual requirement that God gives and that Jesus gives to love. Followers of Jesus Christ, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are not only to love our neighbors, we're not only to love our friends, not only to love our family, but we're to love our enemies. So, in other words, that's everybody. Those close to us, those are enemies, all in between, we are commanded as believers of Christ, as followers of Christ, to love everyone. And Jesus corrects the rabbinic tradition in verse 44 when he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the first thing that you might notice if you're following along in your Bible, uh, in your version, you might have something a little bit different in verse 44. In my version and many others, again, it says, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, if you have another version, particularly the King James and the New King James, you have, might have a little extra uh, in verse 44. Your version reads, "But I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you." So this is what we call a textual variant. Some manuscripts have this additional language, specifically where it says in the King James and the New King James, bless them that curse you, do good to those who hate you. Uh, That's not in some of the uh, manuscripts. Uh, However, the variant does not change the nature of the text. The variant doesn't change the meaning of the text at all, Uh, nor does it change anything, any doctrine found anywhere else in the New Testament. It actually reiterates other portions of Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus has given a very similar sermon. Many people actually have thought that it's the same sermon. I don't think so. I think it's a different sermon. A lot of the same teachings. But in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 28, he says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. So that text right there parallels uh, what some of your versions uh, may say when it adds those things. So again, textual variance, some manuscripts had that extra, some didn't. There's nothing to be concerned about because it doesn't change anything. Actually, it gives us additional flavor as to what Jesus said as recorded in Luke chapter 6, that we should love our enemies. But before we can dive into the text, I think it's important to define terms. And I've done this a lot as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, because as many of you know, and as I shared earlier, you know, we heard a lot of love yesterday at the Pride Festival. We, we heard a lot of people tell us what we were doing was not loving. We heard a lot of love everyone, okay? And as Christians, we say yes and amen. We should love everyone. But we have to define terms. We have to define what it means to love. Our culture has a twisted and a very incorrect view of love. Uh, we hear from the LGBTQ woke mob all month of June that love is love. Love means love everyone. Love means acceptance. Love means equality. Love is tolerance, right? Have you heard that? Except, of course, tolerance over what you believe, right? Love is inclusive. Love is non-judgmental. But in their in their humanistic. Uh, secular and anti-God worldview, they define love in terms that are not comporting with the Bible. They define love as acceptance without repentance, inclusivity of all religions, that there's no one standard, one right, one wrong. Their worldview defines love as non-judgmental, Uh, Essentially, love to them means that there's no objective standard of truth, there's no right, there's no wrong. Therefore, you must not only accept and tolerate them, but you must affirm them, publicly support and advocate for their choice of gender, their sexual orientation, their sexual activity. And this is both in the social sense and in the civil, uh, civil sphere as well. And my friends, that is absolutely not love. In fact, according to the Bible, affirming that and supporting that is actually hate. And much of Christianity has been bewitched and has adopted this cultural view of love. Love nowadays to many Christians means simply being quiet. It means not being confrontational with the truth, even in a loving way. It means not telling others that they are wrong. But again, brothers and sisters, that is not the biblical view of love. It is not the biblical view of love. Not just yesterday, but all week, what's happened in our own town here in Rock Hill over the the last eight days. Sins have been publicly flaunted like Sodom and Gomorrah, and this town was desecrated by evil and perverse ideologies that not, only, that not only seek our acceptance, no, friends, we're way long past that. They seek total domination, total control, total power, and they wish to put you under their submission. Why do you think they parade a flag? Why do you think they have those flags? It's not about acceptance, my friends. We're way past that. And during the last seven days, what message do you hear from Christians, from churches, from pastors? Pretty much nothing. Crickets. Just, just ignore them. Just pray for them. There, there's no sense of speaking about it. You know, by the way, look at our VBS over here, shiny object. Just look this way. Don't look that way. Just ignore Don't go to Rock Hill. Don't go downtown. Just avoid that at all costs. And look, I'm not saying against the VBS. I'm just using that as an example. Um, and that's the message. Just ignoring them is loving them. Just pray for them. Just, just leave it to God. But my friends, that is not love. Love, according to the Bible, is inclusive of speaking the truth. Even when the message is rejected and reviled. Apathy is not love, my friends. And that's why it's so important that we constantly renew our minds with the Word of God because we don't even know how much we're being affected by the culture. It's very important, friends, that we we take the battle over definitions and terms. You see, the culture likes to take things like this, like love, which everybody, not defining love, but everybody, most people believe love is a good thing. So the culture likes to take terms, biblical Christian terms, and redefine them and then use it against us. They're actually using our worldview against us to say we're not loving. You understand what I'm saying? We need to take the fight and redefine terms that the culture has grabbed. That's why it's so important. We have to be in the Word of God. We have to be renewing our minds so that we can understand what these things mean from a biblical perspective. Uh, Love being one of them. You see, we are to speak the truth in love, and apathy is not love. Many people, many Christians, fear man to such a degree that they keep quiet. And then they give the excuse that they're showing love by their apathy and by their quietness. But like I said, love is inclusive of speaking truth. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4 15. And we see examples of this throughout the Bible. John the Baptist, he did not remain quiet when public leaders were in sin, but he rebuked Herod publicly. Was that loving? I think so. The prophets, they did not remain quiet when the entire nation was being desecrated by false gods. False worship and injustices. No, they didn't remain quiet, but they had the Word of God, and they proclaimed the Word of God even to a people who absolutely reviled and rejected it. I consider Jeremiah, when in Jeremiah 20, when he talked about being a laughingstock in verse 7 of, of chapter 20, he said, I became a laughingstock all day long, everyone mocks me. Why? Because he said, thus saith the Lord, and nobody heeded the call. But then he said in verse 9, But if I say I will not remember him or speak him any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. See, Jeremiah had the word of God, and he said if he held it in and tried to ignore it, it would be like a fire shut in my soul. I can't do it. I have to. As Paul said, woe to me if I don't proclaim the gospel. And friends, that's the type of attitude we should have as Christians. Whatever context of life God puts you in, we have to understand that loving includes loving indeed, but also includes loving with our words, by speaking the truth in love. And Paul, the apostle, he didn't remain quiet when rebuking the sins of the churches, did he? Or calling out false teachers by name. This was not separated from loving them. It wasn't like Paul's loving them over here, but then he has to do this rebuke and he has to call them out and You know, that's hard, but it had to be. No, it's not exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. As a matter of fact, Paul actually references his strong rebukes as his way of loving the church of Corinth. In the second uh, epistle in Corinthians, Paul actually references another severe rebuke letter that he sends them sometime after 1 Corinthians and sometimes before 2 Corinthians. He references this letter in 2 Corinthians Uh, as a letter that was harsh. And in chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. Paul, in anguish and in tears, is writing this letter of strong rebuke, we think First and Second Corinthians were strong rebukes. We don't have this letter in between, but that was an even stronger rebuke in my estimation. And he said out of anguish of heart, he, he wrote with tears, and he said he did it to show the love which he had for the people in the church of Corinth. They were not mutually exclusive. He actually describes it as this was the way to love you was to call out your sin. And many people today, even light corrections, even even alluding to to receiving if somebody says you're wrong about anything, we get all, who's he? Tell me. How about go see if it's scripture if it's true, and then repent if it's true, and then praise God that you were rebuked by a brother or sister in Christ. But no, today, any type of correction with the Bible is twisted as some sort of uh, authoritative you know, abuse or something like that. But no, it's actually loving uh, to encourage and exhort with the word of God, and even, yes, correcting. What about Paul opposing Peter to his face because of his hypocrisy? and showing partiality to the Gentiles. You recall Peter would eat with the Judaizers and refuse to be seen with the Gentiles, causing much confusion for the gospel. Paul rebuked him, not privately, but publicly, in front of everyone. Was this not done because of Paul's love for Peter and Paul's love for God, for the Gentiles, for the gospel? Absolutely, absolutely. So, friends, we cannot divorce love from correction. We cannot divorce love from rebuke, from speaking the truth amidst possible persecution. It's not an either-or. It's a both-and. It's a both-and. We are to love in both deed and words. Jesus even says, Whom he loves, he rebukes and disciplines. Revelation 3.19 we must renew our minds with the word of God to understand the truth of what love is according to the Bible. We must. So turn briefly before we get into our text uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians I actually read this, I tried to read it uh, yesterday. Uh, we all know this chapter, it's the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. What I noticed about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is there's actually more is nots than is. Uh, Most of these are love is not this. Love does not do this. Uh, But we're not going to exposit the whole chapter, but if you just look at verse 4, I'm going to read a few verses and kind of point out a few things. Because, again, we want to have a biblical view of love to bring into the text. That's why it's so important to have a a well-versed, well-rounded Uh, theology with God's Word, so we're not adapting these cultural ideas and bringing them into the text. We want the biblical view of love. Love is patient, verse 4. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Listen to verse 6. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Verse 6 sticks out to me. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. I find it interesting that Paul contrasts unrighteousness, or your version might say wickedness, evilness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And friends, what's the standard of unrighteousness? God's word. He contrasts wickedness, evilness, unrighteousness, not with holiness, not with what we would think the opposite of unrighteousness would be, but he contrasts it with the truth. I find that very interesting that he says love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Why does he contrast the two? Well, friends, when we rejoice in the truth as God has uh, proclaimed in his word, when the truth is proclaimed, accepted, and rejoiced in, then unrighteousness is dampened, wickedness is rebuked, and God uses it to bring people to himself. And this, my friends, is love. This is love. To love God and to love our neighbor, we need to be people who proclaim and rejoice in the truth that's found in God's word, come what may. We should never be ashamed, never be embarrassed about anything that's found in this word in our culture. It is the truth. It is the one and only objective standard of truth, and we need to be people who love God our neighbors so much in a way that we rejoice in the truth, whatever persecution might come. So to summarize this idea of love, before we get into the text, love according to God's word includes loving in both speaking the truth in our words and our deeds, not either or. So I hope that helps have an undergirding and understanding of love as we dive into this text. So go back to Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So the requirement is to love. Very simple. We are required as God's people to love not only our friends and family and those we like, we are required to love our enemies. He says it very plainly. We are to love our enemies... And he describes love in this text as an impartial and as an active, positive love. The first thing we must understand is that when we are to love our enemies, we are to love in an impartial way. We are to show love towards one another without partiality. Love, according to Christ, should not be determined based on who a person is, or what they will do or have done to us. That is partiality. Look at verse 46 and 47. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Basically, what good is it? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? So Jesus is saying, hey, if you're only loving the people that love you, what, what, what good is that? Even, even, the, even the tax collectors do that. Now, when you hear tax collector, that not, may not invoke an emotion that it would have invoked upon the people that were listening to Jesus during that time. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were traitors to the nation of Israel because they turned their back on Israel and started to do the Romans bidding by taxing people unjustly. So they hated tax collectors. Same thing with Gentiles. We kind of gloss over that and, and understand that this would have invoked uh, an emotion during the time that we can't understand today. Okay, uh, So it's going to be kind of hard for us to, to think about it, but I want to rephrase this, if you will, in a matter that may invoke the same emotions upon us. Uh, So I could say if you love only those in your circle to God, it's no better than those who flaunt their sins like Sodom and Gomorrah, for even the LGBTQ community loves each other. Let that sink in for a minute. They even love, we saw them love each other very well yesterday. And God says, if you're loving with partiality, if you're showing partiality, you're only loving those in your inner circle, your friends and your family. It's no better than those people because even they love themselves. Well, to illustrate this even further, turn with me to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And he addresses this uh, sin of partiality. And this is where he actually um, calls. Sin, partiality. James chapter 2. Start at verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man with dirty clothes... And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes. And you say, sit here in the good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name of which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. After James describes uh, partiality, he then says, however, in verse 8, However, or on the other hand, okay, don't show partiality. On the other hand, if you're fulfilling the royal law, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you're showing partiality, you're committing sin. So James equates showing partiality to committing the sin of not loving your neighbor as yourself. So again, the way that we treat others, the way that we love our enemies and love others should not be dictated based upon who the person is or what the person has done to you. Uh, Here's a good rule of thumb to ask yourself in situations with dealing with others. Would I treat this person the same way I'm treating them if they were a loving friend or a close and loving family member or if they were someone I love and like very much. Well, if the answer is no, you are treating them differently or worse because of who they are, what they are, or because what they've done to you, then you're committing the sin of partiality. Loving your enemies means loving them without partiality. Now listen, there's people in our lives like your spouse. Obviously, you're going to have a different type of affection and love for them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your everyday Christian walk, interaction, and your relationships, especially when it comes to conflict and things like that. We are to love our enemies by loving them without partiality, without partiality. Second thing, loving your enemies means you're actually doing something to love them. This is not just some pie in the sky, okay, I'll just like have a good, you know, thought towards them. Uh, No, but actually in the text, we will see that loving our enemies includes actually doing something that shows them love. Love is an act of the will. It's an action. It's not some mystical emotion that ebbs and flows. Uh, Look back at our text at verse 44. Uh, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Uh, so the first thing is that love in the original language is actually a verb. And then he says to pray. Pray is an action to actually do something uh, to love them. To love your enemies, that word to love means to, be, to show preference, to be full of goodwill and exhibit the same. So you're actually, you're actually doing something to love them. Okay. and then in some versions, as I mentioned earlier in verse 44, it actually adds, do good to those who hate you, and says in Luke 6 as well, bless those who curse you. These are all actions. We are to take action to love our neighbor, and in Luke, in the text in Luke 6, 28, and in some of your versions in our text in 44, it says, bless those who curse you bless those who are you kidding me god you want me to bless the people that have and we're not talking about just someone cursing you to your face someone who's actually shown harm towards you reviled you slandered you and has mistreated you he says to bless them now this word to bless it's more than just oh may the lord bless them that's not what the word meant to them and we want, when we're studying the Bible, we want to make sure we understand the historical surroundings. So to bless your enemies. You understand that word in the original Greek means to invoke a benediction, a blessing and a praise upon the other. Uh, this word is used, uh, was used in the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament when God would actually bless. Listen to this. The Aaronic blessing in Numbers 6.24, you know, where it says, May the Lord bless you. May his face shine upon you. That's the word in the Greek when it was translated uh, where God actually blesses the people. Now Jesus is saying, he's commanding us to bless our enemies. To invoke a blessing, to actually bless them in the name of the Lord. Jesus is saying, bless your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Bless those who mistreat you. Those who slander your name. Those who hurt you, bless them. Those who have abandoned you, bless them. Those who turn their backs on you, bless them. Those who gossip about you, bless them. Those who slander your name and have walked out on you, bless them. Bless those who have sought your demise. He says, bless them. Bless them. Do not curse them. Friends, this hits, I think, home with a lot of us, does it not? And let me ask you when was the last time you actually prayed for and blessed those who are considered your enemies? Those who have reviled your names, those who have shown hatred towards you and mistreated you. When was the last time you actually invoked a blessing upon them and prayed for them? That's the demand. That Jesus gives here and you might think this is this is too much I I can't do that Uh, that's the point God's perfection God's standard we can't hold to it perfectly and that's where we repent and God works in our heart so that we can do it by the power of the Holy Spirit look at verse 47 it says if you greet only your brothers what more you're doing again cultural context When we greet somebody, hey, how's it going? That's a greeting, right? In that day, a greeting was much more than a, hey, how you doing? A greeting literally meant to embrace somebody, to accept them, to salute them. It was actually a sign of showing honor towards another. To greet another in that day, you were actually showing great respect and adoration. It was more than just saying, hey, what's up? we are to greet even our enemies okay and not to mention it's not in the text but there's an undergirding requirement here when it, when it comes to this loving our enemies and that's forgiving our enemies we are to forgive our enemies we can't love our enemies and bless them if we're not forgiving them for the things they've said and done to us so that's the requirement folks uh, that's the standard of god's holiness Uh, To not only love our friends, but to love our enemies. Now, so now let's look at the reason for the requirement. Why are we to love our enemies? I want to show you three reasons Jesus gives us for loving our enemies. And the first reason we ought to love our enemies is so that we would reflect the character and nature of our Father in heaven. So that we would reflect the character and nature of our Father in heaven. We see this in verse 45. After Jesus says, love your enemies, he says, so that, he gives us the reason, so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Now, it's not a conditional statement. It's not, hey, if you love your enemies, you're going to be saved. No, he's saying, so that, you're going to show the very character and nature of God when we love God. Our enemies. Children reflect their parents' nature. Parents? Amen? You want to get to know somebody? Get to know their kids. They reflect the good, the bad, and the ugly, do they not? Parents reflect their na- their their children reflect their parents' nature. As God's children, we must reflect his attitude, his character, and his conduct, and because God loves His enemies, we must do the same. The theologian John Murray, on this passage, said, "The ultimate standard of right is the character or nature of God. The basis of ethics is that God is what He is, and we must be conformed to what He is in holiness, righteousness." Truth, goodness, and love. These are the communicable attributes of God. And because he is the standard of righteousness, we must reflect who God is. We must, as his children, reflect his nature. And this includes his goodwill towards his enemies. His goodwill towards his enemies. The second reason we ought to love our God, or excuse me, love our enemies, is because it shows the world that we are different. Christians must be different people. Loving our enemies is the antithesis of the world's view of love. And believers, we are to be different, we're to be unique, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We are, in fact, new creatures if we are in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, yet it's not I, but Christ that lives within me. And the love that God demands is only possible with a true Christian. It's only possible with a true Christian. The love that we bestow upon people who mistreat us, the love that we bestow upon people who persecute us, malign us, abandon us in the power of the Holy Spirit is in fact the love of God. It's not our own love. This is how we show that we are a people who are different. We've been regenerated by God because when we show love towards those who have mistreated us, it is not our love because we cannot do it. It is not in our sinful nature out of our own love, loveful heart. We can't do that. So when we don't revile evil for evil. When we re- when we return good for evil, it's actually God's love that that person is getting. You get where I'm going. You get what I'm saying. Okay. So now they've just experienced the people who have reviled and mistreated you. They've experienced the very love of God that God works through you and I. It's not natural. It's a supernatural. Uh, it, Earlier in the sermon, he said, let your light shine before men so that what? They would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And this is how we let our light shine before men. When they see we are uniquely different, it opens up a door to speak the truth to them in love. When those around us see us bless our enemies and pray for those who mistreat us, it makes them scratch their head like what is wrong with this person? Why are they loving this person and actually praying for them and asking God to bless them when they've done such horrible things or said such horrible things about them? And it opens up a door for the gospel to then come forth, and God will use it to soften the hearts of those around us and open the door to the gospel. Friends, but the key here is, the key in this part is to give glory to God and not take your own glory when people see your light shining and they see wow they're they're blessing people even though they're being talked badly about you have to give God the glory you can't just say oh thank you because what the world does and I've experienced this being in the corporate world for so long is that what the world does is then they'll exalt you and your character they'll say oh yeah well, you're such a good person wow I can't believe you did that you're so good and friends if you keep your mouth shut. You've just exalted yourself. So when the world sees your good deeds, my friends, you must, it's so vital, so important that you give glory to God. You say, well, thank you, but really it's not me because if it was me, I probably would have cursed that man back. But by the grace of God, it's his working in me. It's actually him doing it through me. So I give all the glory to God. And that is how you let your light shine before men. That is what opens the door for the gospel. Uh, The third and final reason why we ought to love our enemies is because God himself is loving towards his enemies. This kind of carries over from the last one, but look at verse 45. It says, in the middle of the verse, it says, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Well, this text kind of refers to what many theologians uh, call common grace. Uh, It's clearer in psalm 145 9 where it says the lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works so although sinners are awaiting the wrath of god if they do not repent god still graces them with the beauty and the blessing of his creation and look what it says in the verse it says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good So when it rains on your garden, it rains on your heathen neighbor's garden. Uh, Even though, again, if they don't repent, they're going to suffer the wrath of God, God actually blesses them with the same blessings of his creation that he does for you. Furthermore, we see in the text that God uh, not only loves his enemies by gracing them with creation, but he also loves his enemies by dying for them. Right? Take, for instance, you. You know, before you came to Christ, if you're in Christ, the Bible says you are an enemy to God. You and I were God's enemies before we came to Christ. We see this in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. It says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. And before that, in verse 6 and 8, it actually says, for while we were still helpless, We were enemies, we were slaves to sin, we were dead in our sin, we were helpless, we couldn't save ourselves. At the right time, Christ died, it says, for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were, by nature, children of his wrath, Ephesians 2, 3 says. While we were enemies with God, while we were rejecting God and in rebellion towards God, God came and died for you on the cross. God, in his great mercy, bestowed love and grace upon you, a sinner, an enemy of Christ. He died for you. He became your substitutionary atonement for you. He forgave you. He's redeemed you. He's adopted you as his own, and he did this while you were his enemy. We must love our enemies because while we were enemies, God loved us. Amen? Finally, the results. The results, what are the results? Well, look at verse 48. It says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the therefore is therefore the previous passages, but also, I believe, it encompasses all the illustrations that we've gone through, these six illustrations. Jesus is saying, hey, because of all this, in the immediate context, uh, because God is loving towards his enemies— Uh, because the the law of God requires a a deeper inner work of God, because it's not only external, but it's internal. It's a matter of your heart. Because of all this, the standard is perfection. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we can look at this two ways. One in a salvific way. We have to be perfect to go to heaven. But I also look at this as a sanctification way. Our goal is, is to be perfect. In other words, holy. God is holy. That is perfection, is it not? We will never attain the standard of holiness and perfection, but that is our standard nonetheless. And what we see here in these six illustrations shows that the law of God was not only external, it was meant to totally radically change our hearts so that our hearts would be 100% pure and holy before God. So when we're loving our enemies We are showing the perfection of God and the perfection of his love. We are to be perfect because God is perfect. That is the standard, friends. Brothers and sisters, God does not lower his standards. He doesn't grade on a curve. He will never lower his standards to mankind. His standard is always perfection. His standard is always perfection, both external and external internal. Well, I want to conclude by looking back at one of the Beatitudes where I started this sermon series about a year ago. Uh, Look at chapter 5, verse 7. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, the Beatitudes describes the true nature of those who are in the kingdom of God, those who are true believers. And one of the marks of a true believer, listen friends, one of the marks of Of a true believer is that they love, not as the world loves, but as God commands. One of the marks of a believer is that they're merciful, they're forgiving, and yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, they love their enemies. They bless those who curse them, they pray for those who mistreat them. And friends, listen to this if we are to do that for our enemies, how much more so do you think we should be doing that for those in our side of our own homes, our own family, our own co-workers, and our own neighbors? The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John, who was the apostle of love, writes that if we do not love one another, then the love of the Father is not in us. It's safe to say that if there's not a mark of love in a someone who professes Christ, then it's valid to question if they're even saved. If there's no love in the hearts for towards others, and again, it's a sanctifying work, yes and amen, uh, but I can't ignore the scripture. He says, if you don't have love for one another, the love of the Father is not in you. Uh, the whole book of 1 John is a good test. He actually uses tests of love to test ourselves to see if we're in The faith. And at one point in 1 John 4, verse 11, John says, Beloved, if God so loved us, if we could only understand how much God loved us, we also ought to love one another. Consider the great love with which God has bestowed upon you, friends. What great mercy, what great grace He's bestowed on you, becoming your sin bearing substitute, suffering the wrath of God that you and I are due. Friends, meditate upon that until it affects your soul so much to when you're offended by word or whatever that you understand the love of God for you has been so great. How could I even get offended? How can I return insult for insult when I deserve so much worse than how that person talked to me or about me? Let that fuel Fan the flames, let the love of God fan the flames of your heart so much that, it, that it is the, it's the engine that drives the caboose for you to love even your own enemies. And when you fail, because you will, repent, turn to Christ once again, come back to your first love. God will cleanse you and then he'll give you another opportunity because he is a God of love and he will sanctify those who he calls out of darkness. Well, I want to share a story with you to conclude that illustrates this type of love, love for your enemies. Many of you know the story of Corey ten Boom, her and her family saved hundreds of Jews during the 1940s, during the Holocaust, by by creating a hiding place inside of their home where they hid Jews as they were fleeing uh, Hitler. Uh, They were Dutch Reformed. They were not Jewish, but they were hiding Jews as they were fleeing. Uh, Herself, her sister, and her father were arrested and placed in a concentration camp. Her father and sister died, and Corey made it out on a clerical error. It was actually a mistake that she was uh, let out. And days or weeks later, the remaining women in her camp were sent to the gas chamber. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom wrote in her book, The Hiding Place, uh, she talks about a story when years after being in that concentration camp, and if you haven't read the stories, I encourage you to do so, uh, it, it, it was unbearable to, to read and to understand how despicable the conditions were in the concentration camp. And she was there for a very long time. A very long time uh, but years later after she was out she would go out and she would speak about the truth of God and salvation in Jesus Christ uh, years later she met at one of the places she was speaking she actually met one of her enemies face to face who didn't know who she was I mean knew who, she was in a camp but didn't know that she was in the very camp he was guarding this was a jailer who stood guard at the very concentration camp that Corey and her sister Betsy were in. And she tells the story about meeting this jailer who was an enemy. These jailers would mock them and do despicable things to them. Can you imagine meeting your enemy like this face-to-face? She says in her book, quote, It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, a former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, meaning in her mind. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's, her sister, pain blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. And he said, How grateful I am for your message, he said, to think. That as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was then thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people, the need to forgive, kept my hand to the side. Even as the anger, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I prayed, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened, she says. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it was not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world, world's healing hinges but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. End quote. Corey could only love her enemies because the love of God had been shed upon her heart. Friends, have you been a recipient of this love? Have you been a recipient of God's mercy, of God's grace? If you have, go and show the same. If you have not, if you find it impossible to forgive others, to love those who mistreat you, if it's a habitual practice in your life, uh, children, you as well, listen to me, if it's habitual, that meaning it's a habit, you, you constantly can't forgive others, then I encourage you to take that to Christ because perhaps you yourself have not received the love, mercy, and grace and forgiveness of Christ. And perhaps you need to repent and come to Christ. Perhaps God needs to change your heart and change your heart of stone to heart of flesh. Perhaps Dear friends, you're not saved if you struggle with this. And if you've received God's mercy, let's go and let's do the same. And if you're in Christ and you struggle with this, seek the Lord. Seek to understand what great mercy he has shown upon you so that it's not your own love extended to others, but it's actually the love of God because you understand how merciful he's been to you. And then God gets all of the glory. God gets all the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the great love which you've shown us. God, we are not deserving of your grace. We are not deserving of your mercy. God, but we only deserve the full wrath of God for our rebellion and our sin. But God, you've been so kind to us. You've loved us. We love you, God, because you loved us first. Lord, I pray now, God, that if there's those here today listening or here, God, that live in a habit of unforgiveness, bitterness, um, returning evil for evil, insult for insult, not loving those who mistreat them. God, I pray that you would work in their hearts, God, if they're not in Christ, Lord, bring them to repentance and faith. Uh, Lord, for those who are struggling that are in Christ, God, I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to a place, God, of such humility. God, bring us all to a place of such humility where we're under the weight of your grace and so much adoration and thankfulness for what you've done to us, God, that nothing man does to us causes us to revile. Lord Jesus, as you gave us the example, and as the apostle Peter said, Lord, in 1 Peter 2, God, I'm reminded Lord, that you gave us the example, Jesus, that that he's our example, and you did not revile when you were reviled. God, but when you were upon the cross, it says that you prayed for them, that God would forgive them. God, help us to be under such weight of your grace and your love and your glory, God, that we can go out and we can speak the truth in love, and when those revile us and those say bad things about us or do things to us, God, unkindly, that we, Lord, can... Forgive them easily because we realize how much you've forgiven us. And Lord, we pray that you would grow us in conformance to Christ, God, so that the gospel would go forth and that we would have deeds that match our message. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.